Support for this show comes from Nine West. Winter's finally coming to a close, but you might still fall the very ground beneath your feet with the hottest new trends from Nine West. Nothing beats the confidence the perfect little piece can give you. And their new collections of footwear, apparel, and accessories will let you take on the world in style. Use their Need It Now edit, also known as the Nine Edit, to search effortlessly through trends like Western-style boots, loafers, and more. It's time to wear our confidence, ladies. We can't be contained. Because this spring at Nine West, we are infinite. Buy now and get 15% off with code PODCAST24. Welcome to In Her Shoes. I'm Lindsay Peoples-Wagner, Editor-in-Chief of The Cut. I'll be talking to people we at The Cut love and admire or just find interesting. We'll explore how they found their path, what got in their way, and how they think about bringing others along now that they've arrived. Gia is a staff writer at The New Yorker and a best-selling author. She's also drawn attention for essays on topics like race and publishing, marriage, abortion, and notions of female empowerment, as well as her pulling no punches kind of music criticism. Before writing for The New Yorker, she was a deputy editor of Jezebel and a contributing editor at The Hairpin. Her first book was an amazing nine-part essay collection called Trick Mirror, Reflections on Self-Delusion, which addresses internet culture, scammer culture, and contemporary feminism. We got to talk with her about her latest writing on the Supreme Court's abortion decision, her experiences with motherhood, and how her religious past influenced her writing. The show is called In Her Shoes, so I'm curious, either what shoes do you have on right now, and what's the story behind them, or if you're not wearing any shoes, because I'm usually just wearing some slippers at home, what's your favorite pair of shoes and why? I'm barefoot, obviously, because <laughs> I'm at home. <laughs> My favorite pair of shoes, I was one of those people that was converted to the lack of dignity of Crocs during the pandemic, but I wouldn't <laughs> say those are my favorite shoes. I think the ones that I wear most often, all summer I wear like the silver Birkenstocks that everyone has. And then all winter I wear like the lace-up Doc Martin black mm, boots. Very good choice. Um, I'm very basic with my shoe choices. I've gotten on the side of TikTok that keeps recommending me a certain pair of Doc Martens. Which kind? They're um, a pair that Emma Chamberlain was wearing and said mm-hmm. that she always wears in the summer. And so now all the kids' TikToks are feeding me the same shoes and they're a lace-up. Are they which, like a fun color? Are they white? No, they're black, but they're, a, they're. I mean, they remind me of like the shoes that people wear for like uniforms mm-hmm. in school. Shoes are you wearing right now? Slippers? Um, I always wear like a Birkenstock when I'm home. Yeah, I'm not like a like a comfy shoe person because I do feel like I will I will like fall asleep if I am too comfortable yeah. at home, you know, <laughs> kind of thing. So I wanted to start from the beginning. I know that you moved from Toronto at a young age, ended up in Texas. I think a lot of, you know, what you've talked about in your childhood and like growing up in a Southern Baptist community, just curious of what you would describe that to be like and your family life that kind of led you into writing about a lot of that and, you know, formulating to who you are now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm just, I just filed a draft that, you know, like, of course it comes up again. I sort of feel like I'll <laughs> be writing about abortion for a while. You know, yeah. it's, I've been on and off the beat since I first started writing about it at 
I mean, maybe not even at Jezebel at the hairpin in like 2012. It's, but, you know, as probably everyone listening to this knows, I foresee that it will be a far more um, central part of my writing for a while. And it has reminded me so much of how much of my thinking was formed by and also in opposition to the beliefs that were all around me growing up. I was thinking specifically in this piece, it was like, these ideas that are frequently espoused by the anti-abortion movement, which are like that life is precious and the innocent should not be punished and the world is corrupt, right? I was, I've been thinking lately, it's like those, those form the foundation of my belief in the moral necessity of abortion rights, right? But for many of the people I grew up with, those exact beliefs are the foundation of their beliefs that abortion should be illegal. And, you know, it's just a whole thing. But so, yeah, I grew up, I moved from, my parents moved from, and I moved from Canada, Toronto to Houston in 94, I think. And I was pretty quickly put into this very conservative evangelical private school that was attached to the second biggest megachurch in the country. I was there on and off scholarship until I graduated high school. And until maybe eighth or ninth grade, I had started to chafe at the at certain things, but I didn't have the language for why. My parents are not, my parents are definitely not ultra conservative. Like for example, they are pro-choice, but they never talked to me about abortion once as a child, right? Like they right. were they were not dogmatic, but they had grown up in the Philippines and they kind of, I think had this implicit belief in the superiority of private education that I really disagree with and find incredibly unethical. But that was, you know, it's like if you can get a scholarship to a good school, that's what you should do. Yeah, right? yeah. And, um, and I think I started to pull away really overtly from the, the com- you know, the beliefs of the community around me, which are, you know, like hyper-capitalist and pretty openly white supremacist and very conservative, very evangelical, very anti-abortion, but I am really glad. I'm. I, it, it was formative in many ways, in insofar as it relates to my writing now. I think what it really did for me is it got me very used to being surrounded by people who disagreed with me. Mm-hmm. You know, and and who it it made me. It kind of forced me to get comfortable, kind of being in a place of opposition and understanding that opposition is natural and even maybe healthy and necessary. And I think that's helped, you know, it's helped a lot with the trenches of the internet, right? Yeah. It's like, (laughs) and I also am grateful for it now at this point, because I don't, I don't think that without that background, I would, I would have any interest maybe in understanding the beliefs of the people that, for example, supported the repeal of Roe, right? Right. I don't, um, but it, I have this this baseline that will exist forever because of that environment where I do kind of have a line into that mindset and I try to keep it open because that mindset is, you know, controlling half of the country right. at the moment. So do you feel like because you grew up and, and f- had these feelings of opposition to a lot of people around you, that's what kind of led you to want to write? Or where did you really, you know, find that compelling energy to want you to write? And, and what was your start in the industry like? Well, I should say, like, I never, like, all of that having been said, I had a pretty good time growing up. I think it also taught me about the various ways you can be implicated and take pleasure in complex systems that are not necessarily good for you. So I didn't, you know, I didn't come out of there like immediately being like, I'm going to do the opposite of, you know, like I'm going to 
I'm going to move to Brooklyn and become a democratic socialist. You know, like that was not my immediate like instinct out of, you know, in 2005 when I, right. when I went to college. I always liked writing, but the first person told me I was good at it was my ninth grade English teacher. I remember that very specifically, but I had done it all throughout childhood. You know, copious journaler, written little stupid stories for myself. And I really liked to write in college. I, I think I took like mostly English classes. Like I majored in English and political science and I would take creative writing classes every semester just for fun, kind of, because UVA had this incredible program, University of Virginia, which is where I went for college. But I still never thought that I could write for a living. Like that that I that ambition was not present within me in college because right. I didn't know how you did it. You know, like I didn't I didn't write for the newspaper in college. I didn't like I I just spent all of college drinking and and I'm very like I don't regret any second of that. Like I, I in fact like whenever I talk to college students, they're like, "How do I make it as a writer?" I'm like, "No, no, 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 no. Like go live. Like go work. Like go work in food service. Like go actually learn how to talk to people and live in a lot of different environments." And I think I just never known anyone growing up who worked in a creative field at all, and so it didn't occur to me that I could. And then you know I gradu I graduated in '09 and the recession had just happened and you know media had cratered in New York. I I sort of was like, writing is a New York thing and I'll never be able to afford to live there. You know, it just seemed very, very out of reach. Um, so after college, I did the Peace Corps. I went to Kyrgyzstan in Central Asia and taught English. And then afterwards, I came back and I just, I still, I I kept writing while I was in Peace Corps. Like there's this um, funny thing that happened to me where I had started to try to write a novel I was like, okay, I just want to try to write something that I can, I want to finish a long project because I'd written short stories for a long time. And the novel was set on one long day in a New York summer. And the main characters were four really good friends from college. And the name of the manuscript was called Girls. <laughs> but I lost, I lost that entire manuscript when my computer got stolen at an internet cafe while I was Skyping my boyfriend on Halloween. And, and I was like, I'm never going to write again. Like, I'm not meant to write and all my friends were like, I was like, you know, crying and totally despondent. I was like, it's a sign from the universe that I, this is not for me. And then I realized like the only thing when my, one of my friends was like, Gia, the only thing that will make you feel better, I think is, is writing. Yeah. You know, like I, I, I think I realized during that period that I was going to do it no matter what. And so I, I went, I moved back to Houston and I was, I was like just taking random writing jobs off of Craigslist. I was doing a lot of copywriting and I was like, how can I get paid to write what I want? Like I was just how, what are the ways in which a person can do that? You know? And the only way that occurred to me was to apply to MFA programs that were fully funded and all the only ones that existed like that were in fiction. So I applied to a bunch of fully funded MFAs where I wouldn't have to go into debt. Right. I got, got into one at Michigan and then entered this fiction program there. I was writing fiction and while I was there, I started, this was 2012 when I got there. This was an era of the internet. It was like the exo-Jane. Mm, good era. <laughs> it was the exo-Jane era of the internet. I think that says it all for the two of us. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, it was, but, you know, it was also the era of like the hairpin and the all and yeah. like Grantland and, you know, places like there were a lot of, you know, even like the Rumpus was publishing a ton, like places that a lot of, like the sort of flourishing as, of the internet as a place where, people were still really excited to express very personal things about themselves. Right. And, you know, Twitter and Facebook were not necessarily the primary, you know, it was like people read stuff off of their Google reader. And there was like, it was a, at this point, it was actually a completely different ecosystem. Right. And there were a lot of places where people were first time writers would, you know, could get published 
and you would get paid nothing or you'd get paid $50, but you would get edited sometimes well and, you know, sometimes people would read it. And so I started writing for The Hairpin, didn't get paid, um, but I loved The Hairpin. I read it every day. It was like my favorite website. And I started interviewing adult virgins for The Hairpin. I don't know exactly why. I mean, it probably goes back to the to my Christian childhood. <laughs> uh, but then I, I started doing that. And then in the middle, I started writing more and more for the hairpin, always for, always unpaid. But then halfway through grad school, they, the hairpin's editorship turned over to Emma Carmichael, who I didn't know at all at the time, had never spoken to, but is now one of my best friends in the world. And she cold emailed me and she was like, would you like to be my co-editor? And I was like, what? Like, of course, you know, <laughs> I just had never. And so I started doing that and it was halfway through grad school. And, and that was the, you know, it was like a huge door opened. I mean, it was, it was exactly like a huge door opened. I just never, I never thought, um, you know, I didn't live in New York. I didn't know anyone. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't understand the world of like the New York media, whatever. But I edited the hairpin with her for a while. And then she hired me when she got hired to take over Jezebel. And then in 2016, the day that Gawker went bankrupt, I accepted a job at the New Yorker where I've been ever since. Yeah. <laughs> I sort of was like, this is a sign. <laughs> it's time to go. It's time to go. Well, speaking of the New Yorker, I do want to talk about your piece. We're not going back to the time before Roe. We're going somewhere worse. Rebecca Traister and I have talked about this a ton. And I'm assuming in your friend circles, this has just been such a frustrating, filled with anger kind of conversation that you're having with your friends and loved ones and community because it does feel like we're just going back and it feels like things are constantly getting worse. And I think especially for those of us who have to write or work in media magazines, um, it can feel really hard because it, it's not even the kind of situation where you can get away from and you're constantly seeing all the updates, all the things happening that are usually bad at once. So what do you, how are you processing and what do you feel like people are misunderstanding about what's actually happening right now? That's a great question. Um, how am I processing? I think, you know, often very badly, you know, like just openly very badly. I was profoundly depressed working on that piece and, and the, the other things that I, you know, that haven't come out yet about abortion. I had this wild psychosomatic reaction after this, after the SCOTUS leak where like I actually felt exactly the way I did in early pregnancy in 2020. I like, I threw up randomly and I was so tired that I wanted to lie face down on the floor all day. And I, and I felt fuzzy and I felt, and I, I really think it was psychosomatic, but I was, it felt so uncannily like early pregnancy that I ended up taking a pregnancy test in the Target bathroom above the decal BQ stop, just <laughs> thinking of all the women who have come before me, <laughs> fearfully taking a pregnancy test in that exact public bathroom. And so, you know, the, how am I managing it? It's partly badly. The other part though, is that, and this is something that I've also tried to impart to my friends or people that I talk to, you know, not to say it's exclusively white women, but people who have had m more of a mindset that I have ever, than any I have ever enjoyed, which is that like the world would work in their favor, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and that they would not be required to do any work really to uphold the privileges and freedoms that they deserve, but that we, we in our generation have grown up thinking, I think, would last forever, right? right? Thinking that we would have abortion rights. And I have been trying to, like, I've just been trying to learn. In, in my work at The New Yorker, I, 
it's changed a lot since the pandemic. I, I used to write about all sorts of dumb shit all the time and write about books and write about movies. And then during the pandemic, once I was stuck, once I was like living in one room and not, I was like, my interests, I'm not interested in memes anymore. I'm not interested in re- in reviewing an album. I was right. like, all I'm interested in are the protests and mutual aid and like climate change, you know? Yeah. And it really changed the what I was writing about. I feel like I've tried to take, tried to remember while it is a grind to have your nose in it all day long and to have to form any sort of coherence out of it publicly, all the people that our work puts us in touch with often, like the the repro activists and volunteers and clinic staffers that I've been talking to in Texas since 2011 when the state-level rollback started happening, I keep trying to remember that they they find ways to, to keep going, to to continue their commitments, to find rest for themselves, to recommit. And I feel like I've learned a lot about how to stay in it from them. And and I and like lately, you know, I've just like these things are running through my head. Like I've been thinking a lot about that Antonio Gramsci quote, pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will. Mm-hmm. And that's really what I've been trying to keep that in my head since early 2020, every day really, and try to think that my emotions, my feelings of hopelessness can be one thing, but my standpoint of hopelessness, like my, I can have hopelessness as a feeling, but never as a standpoint. Right. I, I feel so stupid for having to manage my emotions like this, but, but I, I do. And I think, um, and I think the feeling of, there's also kind of a feeling at this moment, I think of like, we, we literally have no choice, but to be in it. Exactly. Like, we have, we have no choice. Like we, we cannot retreat from this. It's, it's not possible. There's no option to do that. It's, it's not even like paralysis is not even really a viable option in my head anymore. And it, and, and there have been so many times in my life where it has felt like one. And now it's like, well, nope, it's not optional. Yeah. <laughs> not even worth enter- entertaining as the, the conversation of like, oh, everything's fucked right now. It's like, yeah, it's fucked, but now what? Yeah. Right? What are you going to do about it? Right. What are we going to fucking do about it? <laughs> Yeah. No, and I think, I I don't think that's stupid at all because I often have the conversation with myself about even the choice to, I think, work in in media and specifically do these kinds of jobs and cover the things that we have to cover. I often tell myself, I haven't really earned the right to give up yet. Like, it can be really hard and it can be a grind, especially the really terrible days, like, you know, the day Uvalde happened. It's just, you just want to sit there and cry and it's upsetting. And I mean, there's been so many mass shootings even since then, and it feels like nothing is changing, but we still have to continue on and press on and move forward and try to make things better, even if that feeling is hopelessness, because it's just not, you know, it's not fair to this current generation or the next one after us. Yeah. And we're so, and we're lucky too to... You know, yeah, Uvalde, I mean, I, like, of course, like, that one, like, I'm, I could start crying right now just thinking. Oh, yeah, right? me like, too. Even with that, it's like, you know, you think about, like, the medical examiners that had to that had to take in the bodies of those children and then the bodies of all those migrants that were found in that truck, right? And it's like, those people don't have an option to stop working. We get to sit behind our laptops, at least. We, um, we are, in so many ways, like a so much more protected and yeah like I, I with the repro stuff it's just like I, I just like always I'm just thinking about at this moment there's there is there are hundreds of volunteers like on the phone with people saying here is your plane ticket here is how I will I got you a direct flight so there are no checkpoints like all of these things like and I feel actually really braced by that I think it's it's been good for me to remember in various ways we're in this together and you know we need everyone's little movement wherever it is right 
Support for this show comes from Nine West. Winter's finally coming to a close, but you might still fall the very ground beneath your feet with the hottest new trends from Nine West. Nothing beats the confidence the perfect little piece can give you. And their new collections of footwear, apparel, and accessories will let you take on the world in style. Use their Need It Now edit, also known as the Nine Edit, to search effortlessly through trends like Western-style boots, loafers, and more. It's time to wear our confidence, ladies. We can't be contained. Because this spring at Nine West, we are infinite. Buy now and get 15% off with code PODCAST24. In your article, you described the future as being worse than any past that we could return to. What do you feel like that actually looks like? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. You asked earlier, I think, what what are people not understanding right now? Right. Well, one of the big things is that I think this might be a real thing for people around our age, which is like this, like we're in a lot of ways a generation that has not had to engage, that, that has like kind of believed the the, you know, the end of history thing, that we were on this teleological path towards like increasingly perfected liberal democracy. And once a freedom existed, it would exist forever. And I think, I mean, I, I really instinctively felt that in my bones for a really long time, you know? It, it wasn't until we were in our teenage years, at least, I think that many of us started to understand that that was actually not happening. And that I think that one of the things that is being misunderstood is like Roe took so much effort and organizing and and like radical work to to get that protection right it took decades and decades and decades of work and it's like we're gonna like we're gonna have to engage in a prolonged in prolonged radical collective action to get anything done that we want and like that's something that I think people have a hard time some people and myself included probably at like a instinctive level have a hard time accepting you know it's it's like we also like at the, it doesn't, that realization doesn't compute with the speed at which like information and other kinds of change happen in our brains, exactly. right? Like the, the actual change of, 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 of winning rights and like making actual real changes, it, it, it is several thousand times slower than anything else our brains are used to. And that is, I think, like everyone's always kind of hoping for a hand of God situation that will just make that will just reverse it. And it's like, no, 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 this is going to be no. a round game for fucking decades. You yeah. Know? And it's going to require people to attend meetings and make phone calls, right? Like things that people I think really have, have thought, you know, we shouldn't have to do that. It's like, no, 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 we're gonna have to go to a fucking meeting. Yeah. But I think, you know, when I was saying that we're, we're not going back, we're going somewhere worse. I don't know to what extent this is a persistent um, misconception, but, you know, you go to protests, all the, all the repro protests I've been to over the last several years, like there's always the coat hanger imagery, right? Mm -hmm. And and it's, and it's, I think people, perhaps people don't understand that this is not going to be a situation where people are bleeding out because they tried to induce an abortion with a coat hanger in their bedroom. I mean, there will be unsafe self-induced abortions for sure, but we have the abortion pill now. Over half of uh, American abortions are already through the pill. They're extremely safe, Although medication abortions still require, you know, access to follow-up care, which is off the, it, in many ways off the table for people in prohibition states. But illegal abortions no longer have to mean unsafe abortions. That's a huge change. But the worst part is that we're in a completely different landscape of, of, of 
corporate and state surveillance than we were in the time before Roe. Like you could in the past go somewhere and get a procedure and come back home, you know, and the only record would be your plane ticket. Now, as soon as you even think about it and you, and you check like flights, flights to Colorado, Mm -hmm. you know, um, like abortion clinic, Colorado, let's say that is already, that is registered, let alone your travel, let alone your call to a helpline, let alone anything. There's, there's a dragnet of, of surveillance in place that will make every abortion extremely trackable by the state or by individuals, by prosecutors, by individuals in states with bounty laws like Texas. You know, that's an enormous change. And there's also, I think, one thing about this iteration of the anti-abortion movement, it is more, it is it is as it has become as radicalized as the GOP itself has. It's like it's followed this parallel path post-Trump, where it's like suddenly anything goes, any like right. open cruelty is so much more acceptable now on the right. And you know, for example, it's the there are no there are eleven states that passed abortion bans with no exceptions for rape and incest, which is you know, I mean, it's that's a level of, of unthinkable, like real, just it's unbelievable cruelty that that even the like the radicalized you know protester fringe in the 80s and 90s would never have gone there. Now that's openly that. You openly have people calling for mandatory psychiatric custody of women who get abortions. and, And then the last two things I'll say about this is that I think that what is coming is inevitably, it's the movement is not saying this right now, but there are ways that states can shield their own doctors from being prosecuted by conservative states for providing abortions to residents of those conservative states. If that, if those attempts are successful, the only people, you know, the goal is eradicating abortion. And the only way to achieve that goal is to punish the people that get abortions themselves. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, like that is coming very swiftly down the pipeline. And then the other enormous aspect is that what the effects that, you know, the internet's been talking about this nonstop, the effects that abortion bans will have on ordinary pregnancy, right? Where, where every miscarriage in a prohibition state could, if the woman is, or if the pregnant person is otherwise deemed suspicious by reasons of poverty or race or anything else, that miscarriage can be investigated as a possible abortion, as a possible crime, opening their entire life up to surveillance. You know, there's so many ordinary pregnancy conditions, like ectopic pregnancy and just ordinary miscarriage that will not be able to be safely managed in these states. And, um, you know, even things like IVF, um, I, I, I have no instincts about how all of this will play out in those states right. as a year of this rolls on and women who consider themselves anti-abortion realize that they will not be able to get care for an ectopic pregnancy or a miscarriage for a, a deeply wanted child. But I, I, I wonder how long it will take for, for people that consider themselves anti-abortion to realize that this is what we're talking about. It, it goes far beyond abortion. It affects every, it, it can affect any pregnancy. Yeah. Is there, is there a specific worst case scenario that like keeps you up at night as far as the surveillance or just lack of bodily autonomy or general access to medical assistance that you've been mm-hmm. just ruminating on? Oh, man. I, I'm sorry. I'm going to hit you with several. That's fine. <laughs> I, I, I've been thinking a lot about child pregnancy, you know? Like, I, like people have been up in my shit about saying pregnant people, and it's like it's not just being trans-inclusive, right? It's because a lot of people who get pregnant are not women because they are 
10 or 11, mm-hmm. you know? And, and I think about that and the fact that the American Pediatric Association had to issue a statement saying it's not medically safe for a 10-year-old to give birth. You know, it's just like, but the, you know, the, the National Association of Pregnant, or National Advocates for Pregnant Women um, have done a lot of work on the criminalization of pregnancy. And, you know, there's, there's a case that I mentioned in my piece of this woman named Latisse Fisher, you know, who made $11 an hour, had three kids, had a stillbirth at 36 weeks and was held on a $100,000 bond, was kept away from her children, was, they were, they had to, was charged, I think, with, I forget whether it was murder or manslaughter right now, was, you know, was charged, spent three years tied up in this ordeal, was was right. punished to this extreme extent over stillbirth. There's a Brittany Pula in Oklahoma and all these other cases prosecuted for, no, convicted of manslaughter for miscarrying before the, the point of viability, mm-hmm. which is such an extreme jurisprudential case. And and so far, a lot of the preg- the prosecutions of pregnant women, I mean, almost all the prosecutions of pregnant women have been for drug use. But, you know, as we know, there are so many things that people are told they're not supposed to do for fear of, quote unquote, harming the baby. Right. And in the, I think the, the worst case, not the worst case scenario, a scenario that is not unreasonable at all, especially if there are private citizens that are able to sue on behalf of a fetus, which the legal structure is already building to do that, where a woman could be charged, taken into custody, sued, otherwise restricted from doing anything that could be perceived as potentially harmful to a fetus, which is a extremely wide range of activities. And then the last one is just Pregnancy is really dangerous, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like pregnancy kills 800 women worldwide every single day. And and just to think about, like, I think I've just been thinking a lot about the, like, just the ordinary suffering that will be caused by this, the cases that will never make the news because they're not, quote unquote, extreme enough, right? right. Just someone that will get an infection during delivery and, 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 and die during the delivery of a child that they didn't think that they were equipped to carry in the first place, right? Just the people whose lives will silently slip further into poverty, their child's lives slip further into poverty. Like the the stories that will never make the news, I think, are the ones that, like the, the feeling of that ocean of silent tragedy and silent loss of agency, um, like th- that that kind of oceanic despair is the thing that like turns my stomach late at night, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the weight of that is quite impossible for one person to bear. And I think that's why I think that's why this feels so hopeless, because we're all just sitting and thinking it's really bad, but it's getting worse. And and what can we do to make it better for a lot of other people? Because I think that there's so much privilege in, in being a person who right now doesn't care and doesn't act and isn't writing about this or talking about this or pushing these conversations with their community. I've been trying to bully men on my Instagram. Oh, please do. So like, well, I was like, you know, like I, I keep posting links to, to clinics that are opening or relocating. Like right now, just a little plug for Whole Women's Health that's trying to relocate from Texas to New Mexico. And they have a GoFundMe right now. I mean, it's like, it's so sad. It's so awful. It's so horrible that they have a GoFundMe, but they do and it's important. So if anyone wants to throw a donation that way, but I've been like being like, men, I'm talking to you, men. <laughs> hello. Like, hello, men, you know. <laughs> One way I've also been trying to think about this, like every, 
every unwanted pregnancy, every pregnancy that a person is not equipped to carry, every child that a person is not equipped to take care of. I mean, not to say that it is universally like a tragic and universally kind of life destroying, but I was reminded when I was taking my pregnancy test in the, in the, in the bathroom of the D, of the decalb target, I was like, like every, the fact that there is like a little world, each of these stories is, is its own world of just profound suffering and disempowerment. Yeah. The flip side of that is that every person that is able to get the abortion care that they want, that is, an, and you know, that is autonomy returned to them. That is a world of autonomy and freedom returned to them. And I, I try to turn it around on myself and be like, okay, if you can do something that will help one person get it, it's it's not nothing at all. It's it's an entire world, right, to that person. Exactly. I mean, you've also talked about motherhood as a form of rebellion and you've become a parent. Has that changed your worldview about this issue? You know, what what has that meant for your own personal life? Well, <laughs> I mean, it's you know, it's been quite a change. <laughs> but yeah, I had a kid. August 2020, pre-vaccine, lovely time to have a baby. But I actually was really, I was pretty grateful to be pregnant and to have a baby when I did because in as much as it was isolating and quote unquote scary, whatever, it was also, I also felt really lucky. There was, it was a time where everything felt very static and, you know, you know, that like the early pandemic feeling where just time felt so elastic and so strange. And it was, I found, I was finding it really hard to access any sort of surprise or spontaneous joy in my life. And I think a lot of us were feeling that, mm-hmm. right? And a baby, in as much as, you know, it is relentless caregiving from 6 a.m. till 7 p.m. every day, it is a, a baby. And, and my daughter Paloma is was was and is an incredible is a great baby, like, which is also a huge reason it's it's been so good is like, there's so much joy. There's so much surprise. There's so much change. You know, it's like my, my pregnant body was a little ticking clock for me. And then, you know, and when you don't want a pregnancy, that ticking clock is a fucking nightmare. But for me, it was, it was so welcome, you know, and, and I, and I actually, I mean, I was writing about it a little bit in the piece I just filed. It was the good things about motherhood that more than the difficult things that made me feel if it was possible, more militant about abortion rights. Like it was like people deserve the chance to do this on their own terms mm-hmm. and with some modicum of material stability. It's like you, like a third of American parents struggle to pay for diapers, right? Like 17, 20% of children don't have enough to eat. Like it's like how, how dare we ask people to stretch their love around this sort of material terror that so many American parents have to all the time. Like I was so conscious of this t- like this little strung together oasis of security that we were able to make for ourselves and for the baby that, you know, it was, it felt like a, you know, it felt very often like a little heaven and to do it without that strung together security would feel like absolute hell. And I think, I mean, yeah, so the baby has changed a lot of things, changed my <laughs> writing life. I have been, I actually have been screenwriting for like half the time since I had her basically, because that's a kind of work that's much more conducive to life with intermittent. Like I've, I've we only had full-time childcare when she was like one and a half or something like that. Mm-hmm. Consider, you know, I used to sit down at my computer and focus for eight hours at a time. And that was not possible with the child. No. And so I was, I was seeking out a kind of work that I could do in short bursts of concentration, screenwriting, has served that and it's been pretty fun writing wise. But it also like, 
One thing that I think the biggest way, I was talking to a friend about it last night at dinner, one of the ways that it really changed me is I always, I was always very ambivalent about children. I still am hugely, like I, I think it's like kind of an overtly unethical choice to have a child at this moment, but I also think a lot of my choices are unethical and I sort of made my peace with that. After she was born and I felt this large expansion in capacity, like I realized that I, I could make hours more of time in my life that were devoted to caregiving and that were devoted to just being present with someone and, and being devoted to not producing monetizable information in any way, <laughs> right? That, that there was room, there was much more room in my life to live minute by minute in a way that upheld rather than contradicted my values, you know? Mm -hmm. And I became really determined to not only direct all of that change at her. Like I don't, like I think in many ways the heterosexual nuclear domestic ideal is extremely civically destructive. This idea that it, I think we're taught to locate all of our love and our security and our ambition in the like happiness and stability of this little family unit. And I find that so um, horrible, you know, it's like, and, and so ex exactly counter to the way I want to live. And so I've been, since her, I've been trying to be like, okay, you, you have these new capacities and you can't just direct them at your daughter. You have to learn how you can regularly place your caregiving in the realm of your friends, in the realm of your community, in the realm of other things. And, and that, and that's a little bit what I was writing about in that review of Angela Garbus's great book, which had that headline about motherhood as rebellion, is that the understanding of the foundational value of care in every aspect of our life and the fact that, you know, the, the, the radical potential of turning that outside the family has been something that I've been thinking about a lot and trying to, you know, trying to live by in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm not a mother myself, but I, I know that being a parent is such a intimate change. Like it's something that obviously people can know publicly, but very intimate, you know, change in who you are and, you know, fundamentally how your character develops and changes over time. And I was just curious as someone who's also writing so much about Roe v. Wade, um, and that being, you know, such a, a public uh experience right now, how how has legislative moves like the overturning of Roe v. Wade forced your own experience in motherhood into being such a public experience and, and having to talk about it more and having to, you know, reconcile with that more publicly? I've always, for for better and for worse, like <laughs> both, enorm both enormously in my own life, like I temperamentally, I'm an extremely open book. You know, I kind of believe very firmly that people write as the people they are, you know, and I the person that I am who will like say anything to anyone or did at least before my book came out, I I would have assumed that I would have written about motherhood a lot more before now, actually, because I have written about so many other aspects of my life at length. But there wasn't really, so I actually have, it, it has actually been one of the more, more private, you know, I, it comes up in writing about abortion and it comes up when anti-abortion people find my Instagram and, you know, whatever. But it actually has been an experience that I have yet to really write about the center of how I've experienced it, in part because maybe, as you said, it is so 
intimate. It's so particular also. I mean, one of the reasons that I didn't, like I sort of inevitably thought I would end up writing some sort of pandemic pregnancy, like personal essay. I was sort of like, this will, my body will produce this whether I like it or not, right? But one of the reasons that I didn't was I couldn't, I couldn't find the right way to write about it. I couldn't find the right way to write about it without tripping all over myself, trying to apologize for my own considerable privilege, mm-hmm. right? I couldn't, um, it, there was this aspect to the pandemic where our lives were so determined by our individual domestic situations, yeah, you know? hundred percent. That there was no way to write about motherhood in general because there was no motherhood in general. Like it was all determined exactly by the partners that we had and the jobs we had and the, and, and the help we had and the, you know, it, it, there, there was no way to write about that. And then I, I found it so unimportant to write about my experience in particular, but I did keep, but I have kept, like I am a journal keeper and I've, I've, I have written down a lot of things and I'm really glad because you know, one thing that parenthood does, it also just completely blacks out your memory because you're so sleep deprived for a really long time. <laughs> yes. And I, and I read back these, these days that I've forgotten entirely that are, you know, that are trapped on paper just for a little bit and maybe eventually it'll go somewhere. Maybe it won't, but I definitely don't feel guarded about talking about motherhood at all. In fact, because I think there's still, despite the like omnipresence of mother shit on the internet, um, it's like none of it, there's so little of it that represents, there's so little of it that represents motherhood as I've actually experienced it, which is not, you know, not, which doesn't fit into the language of, of the way it's, you know, it's, I have, it's, it's still, for as much as mo- the motherhood internet is so omnipresent, there's not, like, I, I think people are still fumbling towards a way to actually speak about it in a way that is, that is meaningful right. and, and not and not kind of predetermined. No, I, I 100% agree. I talk to my sister about this a lot because she has two kids who are my favorites. And she always felt like the way that people described being a mother or talked about being a mother or even just, you know, Googling something like the, the experience in real life was very different or like that nobody warned her or told her how in actuality the experience would really change her life and, and for really for a really great purpose and and love her kids, but really life-altering thing to obviously bring kids into your world. Well, yeah, and I was talking to someone about this last night too, which was like, I think there's an aspect, like there's a lot of essentialization of motherhood that I find that I find really objectionable. Like this idea that it's like a lot of things in the so the conventional socialization of women's lives where it's like you're given something as sort of like an inevitable requirement and then it's made really like let's take like beauty or you know like anything like that right you're given this sort of ideal that you're supposed to adopt as like a universal requirement and you're made to pay a lot for it it's it's like this it's materially constructed to be this insane obligation and then and then that's just what it becomes like i like I think there's a lot of hallowing and like sanctification of the like superpowers of mothers and the like the work we have to do and the whatever. And I'm like, why don't we make men do all of this? Like, why don't you make your partners do <laughs> yeah. all of this? You know, there are plenty of things that are inherent. There are a few things like biologically inherent or whatever, maybe. But but there's like I think what's interesting to me about motherhood is what is all of the things that can be changed about it. Like what what is fixed and what is not. And I've found in my experience that that a lot is not fixed at all. Yeah, these thoughts are are very unformed in my head. But I think that I'm interested in that aspect of it where there's like an entire buried language that people have not learned how to speak. Yeah. No, I would I would definitely agree. Um, 
what would you say is is next? I mean, obviously a ton of, you know, Roe v. Wade things, I'm sure, on your plate to write. But what what is next for you, whether it be work or motherhood and parenting, or what are you thinking about right now? You know, one one thing that motherhood has done is that, or slash the pandemic, or slash like the hangover after my book came out, it was like, I'd been trying to fix my fucked up relationship to work for a while. You know, like I, I had turned in my book and flown to Miami and read Jenny O'Dell's How to Do Nothing, like in in 24 hours. And I, and I was like, oh my God, I have to change my whole life. <laughs> and I was trying to, but nothing really forced that quite like a baby. Like I was like, suddenly I, I simply can't work all the time. Yeah, yeah. You know? I think, well, okay, so here's here's a, a thing about how my brain works. I am almost mentally incapable of thinking ahead more than three months at a time, which which mostly serves me really well. I mean, I don't know, really I, know what I'm doing past tomorrow. So I think that's great. Yeah, <laughs> but you know, but in terms <laughs> like, of like, but e- even like, if I even like try to close my eyes and think about like, what's next? I'm like, I don't, I don't know. Because how could we ever know? Yeah. How could we ever know? And so like with work, I'm like, I don't know what's coming. I, I'm working on some long things for The New Yorker, a lot of which will probably involve abortion. I'm, I want to do something on one of these criminalization stories, mm-hmm. you know, follow. I, I also have been really wanting to do a late term you know, like 9,000 words on one person's late abortion story. I think that late abortions are still like radically misunderstood. Yeah. You know, I have these people on my Instagram being like, would you support like an abortion at, you know, nine months? I'm like, shut the fuck up. Like (laughs) read a study, you know, like read, like read, read a book. And I'm writing a lot about that. And then, yeah, I've been working, I've been working on screenplays. And I think, like, I I think for the time being, I'm splitting my work life. And I was, I think it helps like the, getting devoting half of my brain to things that are not depressing and are usually pretty fun and and the and the the creative process like how can i make this more fun for other people right, yeah. helps to like that actually has been really helpful in giving me the ability to just like sit sit in the horrible shit and put my horrible text edit folder together of horrible statistics <laughs> and just really like and really sit in it and then when i can't take it i can go back to like trying to make another joke or something you know it's um it's helped like that. And what's another thing that I'm really excited about, my grandmother is turning 100 oh, wow. in, in, Sept- in Oct- on October 1st. And I, she's my maternal grandmother. I've been really close to her for a, a really long time. And she used to live in Los Angeles. So I would see her all the time. Like every time I would go out there for work, I would go see my Lola. And then she moved back to the Philippines a, a few years ago. And I had gone to visit her once, but you know, she's, she's getting really old. And I was, and the Philippines had closed to non, non-citizens, non you know, for travel. Right. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm never going to get to see her again. And she's never going to get to meet my daughter and, you know, all these things. But I'm taking Paloma to go visit her. It's amazing. And I, I'm just hoping that I can, by then, some sort of technology is invented where she, my daughter can go safely unconscious for about 17 hours on the flight. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, I was like, ideally, I would like a big spider to come wrap her in silk. <laughs> And then I'll just put her in the carry-on. That sounds very elegant. I know. I was like, why? I mean, surely this can be invented for like, surely there could be some sort of harmless anesthetic that, you know, that I can that I can give her one to be on a 22-hour flight with a two-year-old. But um, but we're going. And that I think is the thing I'm most excited about for the rest of the year. That's amazing. My my grandmothers were my best friends. So I'm really excited yeah. for you. That's super special. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. I'm so glad we got to talk. I'm really glad to meet you. In Her Shoes is hosted by me, Lindsay Peoples. This episode was produced by Mona Hassan. Our engineer is Brendan McFarlane, and our executive producer is Hannah Rosen. 
The Cut is made possible by the excellent team at New York Magazine. Subscribe today at thecut.com slash subscribe. I'm Lindsay Peoples, and thank you so much for listening. Support for this show comes from Nine West. Winter's finally coming to a close, but you might still fall the very ground beneath your feet with the hottest new trends from Nine West. Nothing beats the confidence the perfect little piece can give you. And their new collections of footwear, apparel, and accessories will let you take on the world in style. Use their Need It Now edit, also known as the Nine edit, to search effortlessly through trends like Western-style boots, loafers, and more. It's time to wear our confidence, ladies. We can't be contained. Because this spring at Nine West, we are infinite. Buy now and get 15% off with code PODCAST24. Podcast24.